So we have only three weeks left in our Genesis series. We've called this series Origins. It's been a highlight of this year for me. And today's story picks up right where we left off from last week, where God rewards Joseph for trusting him even though his life is turned upside down. And I wonder if there's anyone here who feels like they can relate to your life being turned upside down. Joseph um, is 30 years old at the time of this story, and so far he has survived a plot by his brothers to kill him. He's been thrown into an abandoned well. He's been trafficked. He's become Potiphar's slave. He's been sexually harassed, and now he's been thrown into prison. Now, by comparison, I grew up in the suburbs of Portland, and suddenly it doesn't seem that bad. It seems kind of kind of like a normal childhood when you look at everything that Joseph's been through. Joseph's life looks nothing like the life he, he dreamed of for himself. And it's, to be fair, also not the life that God had promised him. God said that he was going to become a great ruler, but now he's just a convict in Egypt. And for a lot of people, that would be enough to like lose the faith. I've been doing this long enough to know, uh, know many people who sadly used to believe But now, for reasons of trials or suffering, now they no longer do. And nothing weighs heavier on my heart than seeing a brother or a sister disown Christ. It's a tragic thing to witness, especially because God has revealed to us in the scripture that suffering is actually a part of life. I think Jesus said it best. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And this is the story that God is telling through Joseph's life. Life is hard, but nothing can stop God's mission to overcome evil with good. And that is the story of Joseph. So by the time that Joseph finally gets promoted to a place of significant spiritual authority, which will happen in in next Sunday's text, he's been given great spiritual authority. But by that time, his faith has been battle tested. He has overcome. His character is proven faithful. And he's a resilient man of God. See, trials and suffering, they do not have to wreck your faith. They can actually do the opposite. I think that God wants to use adversity in your life to strengthen your whole person, your heart, your soul, your mind. And God also wants to prove his power to overcome through your life. And frankly, I think that this is one of life's highest honors if people can see the power of the cross through your life. And let's, what we're going to do today is sort of discover how God does that with Joseph. So here's the end of, of chapter 39. It says this. The warden put Joseph in charge of all, that, all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for the, all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So just like before, Joseph's leadership qualities just cannot be ignored. He's trustworthy, the presence of God is with him, and the results are just clear in his life. He's successful at whatever he puts his hands to do. He keeps getting promoted, and he's in charge of all of the prisoners. And I just want to say that the the Spirit of the Lord is also with you. You may not get promoted every six months like Matt Larson does, evidently. He's just... (laughs) Just can't help but get promoted because he's excellent at what he does. And that's, I think, the idea here is you had the presence of God with you too. 
and the presence of God should be evident in your work. Uh, just this last week, I was meeting with a, a, a man here in our church, a brother of ours, and he was meeting with me, and as we were talking, he was talking about all of the ethics of his company that he was conflicted about, and he'd been bringing those things up in their team meetings and everything else, and it had become evident over time that this man is a Jesus follower because he has such a high degree of integrity when it comes to their company and their company's ethics. So I think the same is true for us. If we are following after Jesus, it should be evident in the way that we do our work. So Je Joseph is just managing everything so well that, that the, the warden can basically check out. It says that he pays no attention to what's going on in the prison because Joseph had it covered. Now, I don't know about you, but if, I were, if the warden had sort of checked out and I were Joseph, I'd be thinking like jailbreak or something like that. But apparently, that's not what happens. But since the warden does check out, there is something interesting, though, for us to pick up. Joseph is the one who sets the culture in the prison. He's the one who leads the culture in the prison. And he's the one who leads the other prisoners. And he's the one who gets to choose how that goes. So I want you to pay attention to how Joseph chooses to lead. This is a very important note. Look at uh, chapter 2 of verse 40. It says, Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, put them into custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. And then the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. So the cupbearer is kind of like the sommelier, all right? He's in charge of all of the drinks in Pharaoh's house, and the baker is like his chef or something like that. And they somehow got into trouble with the most powerful men in the world, and so they wound up in prison like Joseph, and so they're thrown in prison too. So how does Joseph respond to them, or what does Joseph do? Again, he's the one in charge. What does he do? The word is that he attended them, and that's the Hebrew word sharath, sharath, and it means to minister, to serve, or to take care of. Elsewhere in the Bible, this word is used to describe how God cares for us. And also, don't forget, what did God, why did God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Delight? He put them in there to work it and to take care of it, chapter 2, verse 15. So in other words, what is, what's going on here is Joseph is imaging God in the prison. The prison's a dark and chaotic place, but God's representative is there shining light in the darkness. And the way that he does that is by serving and caring for people whose lives are like him, turned completely upside down. And we have, to know, we have to notice that this is Joseph's choice. He chooses to lead in this way. So I think this is a perfect time to talk about how leadership in the kingdom of God is serving. Service is what it means to lead in Jesus' church. Jesus made it clear to us in the Gospels that the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. And then he showed us what he meant by that by giving his life on the cross. Now, I happen to think that the Western church is producing leaders who just cannot handle real spiritual responsibility. To me, it's obvious why. Our leadership paradigms are more informed by corporate America than they are the lifestyle and the teachings of Jesus. So our pastors look more like CEOs or celebrities than they do look like caretakers. And when pastors emphasize their brand and not serving the needs of the people, then what we're building is we're building an empire in our image. We're not building God's kingdom. And empires fall because they have the wrong foundation. And so the kingdom of God is built on you. The power of God being poured out on you when you dare 
to daily pick up your cross and follow Jesus. That's what it means to lead in the kingdom of God. And the Bible says to the end of his reign, there will be no end. There will be no end to the reign of Christ. And that's what we want to be a part of. You and I, we want to be a part of the kingdom of God's advance, not an empire. We want to see God's kingdom advance here in Central Oregon. And that's the culture that we're trying to build here at Riverbend. We want to promote people here at Riverbend who serve and who, and who lead through serving. So this is what I love about Joseph is without anyone looking over his shoulder, without anyone telling him how it's supposed to go, Joseph chose to serve and minister to the baker and to the cupbearer. Now, most of us would agree in that premise that serving others above ourselves is kind of the Jesus way. But um, if you're anything like me, in real life, it's actually hard. It's hard to live that way. Because it takes willpower and it takes motivation and it takes like holding on to the truth when the whole world, it seems, is going in the opposite direction. And I think that's what makes Joseph's example even more inspiring. The aesthetics of the prison didn't crush his spirit. He was resilient throughout of that, through all of that. He was in a dungeon. It would have been so much easier for him to just accept defeat and just become a cynic. And like he could have, when the cupbearer and the baker came to him, he said, what are you guys in here for? He could have just said, oh, you guys think that's bad? I'm innocent. I'm in here for no good reason. I did the right thing, and I've been rotting in here for years. He could have just accepted defeat and became a cynic. But his attitude is everything. It's the complete opposite of that. He's showing up for them. He's concerned for them. He's concerned about their problems. And I can't help, can't help but, but think of Jesus. Remember, Jesus, he came down to our prison. He lived our hardships. He lived our temptations. He suffered even more than all of us, but he endured for you. And he's here for your problems. He's here to minister to you in the language of the scripture. And so I wonder if there's some of you here today who just needed to hear that. You just need to hear that Jesus is interested in you. He's attending to you. He wants to minister to your heart. And I think we're going to leave some room here at the end of the gathering for us to just appreciate that and experience that together. The Lord ministering to our hearts. So the prison can't break Joseph's spirit. But it's more than that, actually, because he's actually changing the culture of the prison. It's not just that the, the prison can't bring him down. It's that he's changing the entire culture of the prison. You guys notice the distinction there, right? That's a, such a good thing. When the baker gets there, what would you, if you're the baker on your way to prison, what would you expect? Well, you would expect there to be a dungeon there. You'd expect torture. You'd expect, expect oppression. You'd expect a place of hopelessness. Instead, he gets blessed. He gets blessed. And we all know people like this, people who make even bad situations and turn them good. Those people are like gold, and that's exactly who Joseph is. Which, by the way, this reminds me of like a cheesy leadership principle and I'm a dad and I'm a pastor, so I get a couple of these per year, okay? You guys have to just kind of deal with it. You ready for the cheesy leadership principle? Here it comes. You, you want to be a thermostat, not a thermometer, okay? A thermometer reflects whatever temperature's in the room, just reflects the temperature that's in the room. But a thermostat changes the temperature in the room. So if you're in Joseph's situation, wrongly imprisoned, and you're just a thermometer, then you would become a deconverted, deconstructed cynic within a week. You want to be a thermostat, where what you're doing is you actually have an effect on the culture of a place for the better. 
I have a good friend, uh, Elizabeth's husband, actually, who was just up here talking about the, 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 the women's retreat. Man, I, let me tell you, Brooke is this kind of guy. He just, like, any room he enters, it's like the fun, the party's here. It's, it's like, just like, it's almost, if everyone's serious, he just will not quit until everyone's laughing. And almost to the point where it's like, okay, bro, we need to move on from that. But it's just the way that he is. It's just how he moves through the world. He won't stop till everyone's having a good time. I love this about Brooke, and I frankly need him in my life for that very reason. Uh, but because Joseph is in the prison, the prison is different. It's changed. There's hope there. There's community. There's a culture of kindness. And we want that here at Riverbend. We want Bend to become a more kingdom of God-like place because of our presence in it. And that's a question for our reflection. Is that true? Is that the case? If we were all of a sudden no longer here in Central Oregon, would Bend even notice? Or are we affecting change for the positive? Are we changing things for the better? Are we seeing the love of God, the kindness of God, the joy of God, the peace of God, the justice of God's kingdom? Are we bringing that to our community? So the way that I look at it is like this. It's up to the Jesus people to bring the Jesus stuff. And that's exactly what we're here to do. Oswald Sanders, who in my opinion wrote the seminal work in the last hundred years on Christian leadership. Um, he wrote this in, in that book, Christian Leadership. He's, he says this. Pessimism and leadership are at the opposite end of life's attitudes. Hope and optimism are essential qualities for the servant of God who battles with the powers of darkness over the souls of men and women. God's ideal servant is optimistic until every part of God's work is done. That's good, right? Now, I'm aware how that must sound to an audience here in the Pacific Northwest. I'm from here, so I get it. Culturally speaking, we're sort of sarcastic and skeptical, and we pull things apart to deconstruct them. Case in point, we judge people who drink Starbucks. I'm guilty. I do that. How could you drink Starbucks? That stuff's garbage. But anyways, this is our, culturally, we do that across the board. So in our culture, optimism is sometimes seen as like a naive, glass-half-full, nonsense kind of thing. And I can certainly see how that's the case with things like politics or entertainment culture or the culture wars. There's a lot to critically analyze there when it comes to those things. However, when it comes to the promise of God, we treat that completely differently. When it comes to the promise of God to save the world, to overcome evil with good, that's what God has said he will do. We are taught in the Bible to trust God's word and to hope in his victory. For example, one of my favorites right now, Romans 5 verse 5. Now, hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the love of God has been poured out in your face. So hope in him does not disappoint. Hope in the other stuff, no guarantees. Hope in the prison, hope in the warden, hope in Potiphar to do the right thing. Hope in your boss, hope in American politics, hope in our economy, hope in technology, hope in our doctors, our health system. There's no certainty there, but hope in God does not disappoint. And the leaders of the future will be ones who hold on to hope in God's ultimate victory despite our life circumstances that stand in opposition to it. Let me say that again. The leaders of the future will be those of us who are able to hold on to hope 
and God's ultimate victory, what he says our end will be, despite our life circumstances that stand in opposition to it. So the question becomes, are, are we hoping in the Lord? Are we, are, you and I, are we hoping in the Lord? Or has our circumstances broken our spirit? Has the, the culture, the aesthetics of the prison broken our spirit? So maybe it's time for us to get skeptical about our cynicism. I just did like worldview jujitsu on you guys there for a minute. It's time to get skeptical about our cynicism when it comes to the promise of God. The real thing is to do what Romans 5 says, which is to nurture your relationship with the Holy Spirit that's been poured out in your heart. He is the first evidence of the new creation in your life, is that the presence of God is with you and present with you in every moment. So we learn to practice the presence of God in our everyday lives. Again, something we're doing right here at the end of this gathering. Next, next uh, uh, notice what happens uh, in, in the story of Joseph. It came about the next morning where Joseph saw that these guys were dejected. So he asked the Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph says to them, Does not, do not interpretations belong to God? So tell me your dreams. So there he goes again with his optimism. Why are you so sad? You'd think that'd be a worthless question. You'd, th- you'd expect the question to be, why are you not sad? We're in prison. That's why we're sad, right? That's what you'd expect to, to hear, right? But that's the resilient hope of God's servant. He's got a hope that doesn't disappoint. You gotta love it. And they respond, well, you know, we both had these dreams. We don't know what the dreams mean. Uh, So I think this is the actual real test or the real temptation for Joseph to be cynical. I would expect Joseph to say, you know, I used to believe in dreams. I used to. 13 years ago, God said that I was going to be a great ruler, but now I'm just a slave convict in Egypt. You would understand that if that's what he said, right? It had been 13 long years since his dream. He seemed further away from God's promise than he was at age 17. And yet, notice his response. He doesn't actually come at it with, with skepticism and cynicism. He says, what does he say? He says, interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. In other words, what he's saying is I still believe in God's word. I still trust the word that God spoke over me all those years ago. I still believe. This is defiant resistance against disbelief, and it's a choice to believe God at his word. The question is, how is that possible? It's, a, it's a aspirational, but how is it possible? Right? Because Joseph's entire family line gave us examples to the contrary. His father, Jacob, kept doubting God even though God kept blessing him and yet somehow here's Joseph and he keeps trusting in God even though he keeps getting thrown into a pit so there's a there's a distinction there's a dichotomy between Joseph and the rest of the family line he keeps trusting God even though he keeps getting thrown into the pit so how is he able to overcome doubt with resilient faith how is that possible for Joseph how is that possible for you how can you overcome doubt with resilient faith well uh, hang, hang with me, okay? I think it comes down to the basic truths that make up your life architecture. This is what philosophers would call the priori assumptions of your worldview. I'm a human. That's up. That's down. Oxygen fills my lungs. Gravity keeps me grounded to the ground. 
You know, the meaning of life is to love and be loved, things like that. Whatever truths you hold closest, whatever truths you hold closest, whether they are conscious or subconscious, they influence how you interpret the rest of your life. Does this make sense? So this is how you and I can experience the same event but have radically different opinions about the event. Like, for example, if you're a Chiefs fan, the last Super Bowl was a triumph, right? But if you're an Eagles fan, your, your team was robbed by the officials, right? And if you're a fan of neither of those teams, then the highlight was like Rihanna or Pepsi commercial or something like that, right? So the same event, but radically different experiences, right? How is that possible? Well, it, it comes down to what our uh, priority assumptions are. When it comes to your priority assumptions, not just your favorite sports teams, it's much more consequential than just that. So in the 21st century, um, our culture has began to sort of radically redo that life architecture. And I'm concerned that the truth that we hold most close to us, the truth that we hold closest to us is how we feel about something. It's how we feel. The ultimate trump card in our culture is the statement, do whatever makes you happy or feel good. What we're saying is that feeling positive feelings is the highest good. So we should do the thing that we believe will make us feel the happiest. I blame the sitcom Friends for that, by the way. And I'm not even kidding. I have a whole like working theory. It's, it's dumb, I know. It's the stupid things I think about. But, uh, but, but genuinely though, that, that statement, do whatever makes you happy, what, it's, it's a statement of truth that we hold very close to us in our culture. Or consider the other statement, that's my truth, that's my truth. What do we mean by when we say that's my truth? Well, we mean that I want this to be true, or this feels true to me, or I feel like this is true to me, so therefore it is. And this is, of course, being pushed to some pretty wild extremes right now in our culture, particularly on the topic of gender. Like my genitalia and my biology and my birth certificate say that I'm a male, but I'm actually not. I'm a female or some other non-binary identity. Now, I'm not saying anything transphobic here. I'm just saying that this is an extremely new ideology and way to think. And, and, and that, that new ideology is only possible if we have reordered truth so that how you feel is equal to reality. How you feel is equal to reality. That's the only way that you can make those kinds of statements about your, your gender or, or whatever. Historically, though, that's not how we view reality as humans, and it's definitely not the wisdom of the Bible. How you feel in your circumstances are relevant. How you feel in your circumstances are relevant, and they matter. Full stop. Some of us, including myself, have been very guilty of just, like, suppressing our emotions and pushing them down, and I'm not saying that that's good or healthy. I do that often. I'm still sort of working through that. But our emotions are not reliable in determining reality. Our emotions are not reliable in determining reality. God did not design your emotions to run the show. In fact, a lot of the Bible is teaching you how to bring your emotions into alignment with what God says is true. And that's a wildly different thing. So if you hold your emotions to be most true, whether they're conscious or subconscious, then your circumstances will cause you to always be questioning what's real. Maybe down is up. Maybe right is wrong. Maybe this dungeon is where I'm going to end up. And maybe God doesn't know what he's talk about, talking about. And maybe God doesn't care about me after all. And yet Joseph overcomes all of these doubts because he holds something else 
to be the most true. The thing that he holds to be most true is what God says about me. What God says about me is what's most true. He said he was going to bless me. He said he's going to make me into a great ruler. Therefore, I believe him. And everything that Joseph experiences goes through that filter. And he goes through several tests, this being one of them. Prison is not fun or easy. And I'm sure there there were many times where he doubted. But his true center, his center is I am who God says I am. And what God has promised me is true. And the same is true for each of us. What God says about you is the truest thing about you. Who God says you are is who you actually are. You're a daughter of the Most High God. You're a son of God. You're beloved. And you know that. We talk about that. We sing about that. If you've been a Jesus follower for any length of time, hopefully this is not a new concept at all to you. But what we need to do, many of us need to do, is to redo the life architecture. Because what's happened is something else has taken up the, the, the most central truth in our heart. And what, that, what needs to happen is that truth needs to move out. So that what God says about you can move in to the very core of who you are. And that takes a process of identifying the lies that we've believed about ourselves, the things that we've internalized from our culture, and things like that. So that we can move those outward, disbelieve some of them because they're not true, and then let the truth about who God says you are take up residence in the core of who you are. We need to internalize what God says about us. We need to actively believe that. One thing that I've been doing with my kids recently, I read a great book on, called The Habits of the Household, and I'm recognizing how many reminders my kids need to know that they are truly loved by God, they're truly loved by me. And so we've been doing a nightly blessing. I look them in the eye and they look back at me. My daughter kind of squirms because she's not a huge fan of all the eye contact. <laughs> but I tell her again and again, the love of the Lord for her, my love for her and the love of the Lord for her. And then I bless her and I pray for her. And that's the last thing we do before she goes to bed at night. We need these kinds of reminders so that what God says about us can take up residence in the very core of who we are. You guys with me? Okay. Back to our story one more time. Cupbearer has a dream, right? And the dream is of uh, three branches filled with grapes. And so Joseph interprets the dream this way. In three days, Pharaoh is going to restore you to your job. You're getting out, man. Like, well, that's, that's awesome. Make sure you remember me. Don't forget me. Remember me. Get put in a good word for Pharaoh. And so the baker hears this interpretation. He loves the interpretation. So he shares his dream too. And in his dream, he's carrying three baskets of bread. And the birds come down and they steal the bread. And Joseph tells him the meaning of his dream too. He's like, hey, sorry, man, it's actually bad news. <laughs> In three days, you're going to be executed by Pharaoh. So, yeah, it's pretty, pretty stark uh, contrast between the two, right? Not the good news he's hoping for. I think the, the lesson in there is that Joseph is faithful to, 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 to speak the truth in love. He's, he's saying the truth. He's speaking the truth. But everything that Joseph says comes true. So what, what, are, we to make, what are we to make of these dreams? You know? um, we read things like this in the Bible. Sometimes we sort of gloss over them or skip over them because we, we're not really sure what to do with them. But I, I think we can know a couple of things. First of all, this. Sometimes God speaks through dreams. 
Sometimes through dreams, God is speaking. One of the first things that we learn about God in the opening pages of Genesis, in fact, it's chapter one, we learn that God is the creator of everything and that he's a God who speaks. That's the second or third thing we learn about God in the whole Bible is that God is a God who speaks. In John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And part of any healthy relationship you know is communication. And so God is wanting to communicate with all of you. And he's wanting to communicate with you often through the scripture, through preaching, through your circumstances, through your mentors, through things like listening prayer and worship music and visions and things like this. God is wanting to speak to you often. In fact, just this last week, I heard from a friend who was sitting in the gathering last Sunday and um, she felt all of a sudden the Lord sort of convicting her heart and she knew that God was asking her to do something, not because there was an audible voice in the clouds or something like that, but she just knew in her heart that God was asking her to do something and she did not want to do it. And so it took her a little bit of time and finally she worked up the courage. She talked to me about it. She's like, I need to do this because I know that the spirit is directing me to do that. And that's just one of the ways that God speaks. God also speaks through prophetic dreams. Check out Joel chapter 2. Uh, verse 28, it says, Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. We are living in those days. Like Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit, and therefore, we are going to, we ought to expect God to move in many of the same ways that we see here in the scripture. And some of us are way more comfortable with this idea than others, but life in the spirit includes this kind of revelation from God. God wants to personally reveal himself to you in ways that build your faith. That's what God was doing with Joseph, and that's what God wants to do with us. In case you're still on the fence about this idea of God speaking through prophetic dreams, uh, here are just a few examples uh, from the Bible of prophetic dreams. This is just a small sampling of them, and there are many, many more. Also, we also see in the scripture there are some warnings about prophetic dreams in the Bible, and here are those, see? So in Deuteronomy and Ecclesiastes and all throughout Jeremiah, there are these warnings about dreams as well. So we're, not, we're taught that not every dream is prophetic, right? Some dreams are just like I don't know, it's just like whatever you had for dinner that night and something crazy you watched on Netflix and all of a sudden you're dreaming. It's not from the Spirit. Um, and we're also taught that not everyone who claims to have a prophetic dream should be trusted. So that's what we learn uh, from that whole, there's a whole Bible study on that that I'd be happy to share with you if you want to geek out with me on prophetic dreams. I'm your guy, okay? <laughs> so not every dream is prophetic. Not everyone who claims to have a dream is, uh, can be trusted. So the question is, how do we interpret Dreams. If some of them are from God and we need to pay attention to their message, then how do we interpret them? Well, that's exactly what Joseph does. Right? Joseph, Joseph does it this way. and He says, interpretation belongs to God. Interpretation belongs to God. So here, here's how it works. I think it's actually pretty simple. Number one, we ask God to reveal the meaning of the dream. We have a conversation with God about it. Now, it may take some sign, some time. But God loves to get his message across, and he will get his message across if we have ears to hear. Remember what Jesus would often say when he's giving a parable or something like that. He said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And so when God gives us a dream, sometimes he just wants us to press in and to take some time to ask him what that dream may mean. And the whole point there is that we would enjoy fellowship 
and communion with the Lord and that we would have ears to hear. Also, we learn in the New Testament that interpretation is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Interpretation is a gift from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12. Oh, shoot. I was supposed to put that on the screen, but I think I forgot to give that to the slide people. Uh, first, write this down if you're taking notes. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 28. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. We learn that interpretation is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So there are some people in this room, I believe, who are gifted by the Holy Spirit to interpret or discern the meanings of dreams and of visions. So then our job, if we have dreams is to share our dreams and to listen to those who are gifted by the Holy Spirit in this area. And this requires a little bit of vulnerability and trust, but that's kind of the point in the family of God. Actually, a really interesting example of this, just this week, as I was in the middle of sort of working this out and how do I want to present this to all of you, some people, uh, some friends of mine were in the prayer room and they popped out and came over to my study and they just wanted to say hi or whatever. And then they took one look at my whiteboard and I was sketching all of this out on my whiteboard and uh, one of the guys was like, oh, I have visions all the time or I have dreams all the time. I just, I never know what they mean. And then the woman who was there with them said, you know, I have visions all the time too. I have dreams sometimes too. And I normally know what they mean. So essentially what's going on there is that this woman, she's gifted in interpretation and discernment. And it was a good little thought experiment for me. And to me, it highlighted another aspect of dreams. That God wants to confirm the meaning of your dream in the community of the Spirit. I think the warning is to do this kind of thing in isolation. I think we need to be cautious about running with the meaning or the interpretation of a dream in isolation. And I think this is maybe why most of the time in my experience, the person who has a dream isn't the one who interprets the dream. Almost always in my experience, someone has a dream and someone else interprets because there's safety in the community of the Holy Spirit. So we need to learn to practice our gifts and practice the manifestations of the Spirit out loud in groups of people. So, by the way, if you have a dream that you're curious about or a vision that you're curious about, there's a group of us at the end of the gathering. We would love to just pray for you and help you discern and interpret what it means. The Proverbs say, in the abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. So anyways, we just had the guy share his dream. The, one that, the latest one that he had the, the night before. And it was very personal, so I'm not going to share it here. But The three of us gave him what we thought was the interpretation, what that interpretation could be, and then we prayed for him. And here's, here's my belief. This is something that I've seen time and again. And so I, I think it's maybe not a rule, but, uh, but it's something that we can count on. Is that if my interpretation, the thing that I suggested to him, if that was incorrect, in my experience... In less than 24 hours, it'll just be in one ear and out the other. He'll forget it and won't remember it. But if the, if the interpretation we're giving him is correct, then my belief is that this guy will not be able to shake it. It will stick with him. Days later, he'll be like, dang it, that guy Andrew gave me that interpretation. I think he might have been right because I can't stop thinking about it or whatever. And that's happened a bunch of different times in my life. And so I think um, in the community of the Spirit, there's safety. And I think that's one of the ways that God interprets our dreams in the community of the Spirit. And then finally, our interpretation will always be conf confirmed through Scripture. Always be confirmed through Scripture. Because God doesn't contradict himself. His word is reliable, it's concrete. Whereas 
dreams tend to be abstract and mystical. Not bad, just abstract and mystical. And so we need to rely on what's concrete, and the Word is very concrete. So we always need to test our dreams against the Word of God. So again, if you have had a dream or you wonder about these things or whatever, we, we are here for you. And we want to practice the gifts of the Spirit here at Riverbend. So we would love to talk with you after the gathering and help you interpret and discern, and we'll do it together in the community of the Spirit. So Joseph's interpretations are true. They come to pass. So here's how we close. We close like this. I think just like Joseph, God wants us to have a holy confidence in our God-given gifts. You may have the interpretation of dreams, or you might be an encourager, or you might be one who prophesies, or you might be someone with the gift of faith, or you might be someone with the gift of hospitality or something like that. If God has given you a gift, then they are powerful and effective and they're meant to be used. I think one of the reasons why we sort of are shy about our gifts or ineffective in our gifts is because either we don't have faith for them or we're insecure about them or we're confused about what the gifts are for or we have too much confidence in our natural ability or something like that. But the scripture tells us time and again that we each have different gifts according to the grace that's been given us. So our, grace, our, our gifts are not actually for ourselves. Our gifts are to build up the body of Christ. So one way of looking at it is we depend on you. We, we need you. We can't look at you and say, oh, you know what? Actually, that gift is something we don't need. No, we are all a part of the same body. We're all necessary. You're necessary. I'm necessary. So we, we're counting on you, depending on you, to walk in the gifts that this Holy Spirit has given you. And so I just want to encourage you to walk in a holy confidence in your gifts, the gifts that God has given you by His Spirit. They've been poured out by, by the Father, and, they, and it comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we just want to encourage you to walk in holy confidence, not for yourself, not for your sake, but for the sake of the body. Build one another up. And then the final thing as we close, I want you to notice how Joseph overcomes doubt. He overcame the pit, the dungeon. And in the next story, he is rewarded and exalted and he ascends to this place of great spiritual authority. But he has to overcome this first. And that's the point. He has to overcome the adversity and his faith has to be battle-tested. He has to be resilient. He has to be able to hang tough when things are, look the opposite of what God had promised. And I, I hope to just give you courage here today that this is what God wants for you too. Yes, you may be living in a world where everything feels like it's upside down and not how it's supposed to be. And Quite frankly, that is the case. I'm looking at a bunch of people here in the room who have had a really difficult year. My friend Talia is now free of cancer, but she had probably the hardest year of her life walking through a really rough go at cancer. And yet here she is, resilient, full of faith, battle-tested, battle-worn. Now, if you have something you need prayer for, you go talk to Talia. Let me tell you, Talia has faith for you. She believes that God will come through on his word because he did for her. And so you're gonna overcome too. 
He's given you everything you need to overcome. You're gonna overcome too. You just need to stand firm where you are and to hold the thing most close that what God has said about you is the thing that's actually true. That's what's true about you, not how you feel in a situation. It's relevant, it matters, we care, and so does God. But that is not good. Emotions are not good at determining reality. What's good at determining reality is what God has said is true of you. That's what's good at determining reality. Everything God has spoken will come true. So what God has said is that the end of history, he will tear open the clouds and he will come down on a white horse and he will establish the reign of his kingdom forever and ever. And to the end of his reign, there will be no end. And this is our hope. This is the hope that doesn't disappoint. I can't guarantee you how your life is going to go. I can't guarantee you the situations that you're in, whether or not you can hope in your boss or whether or not you can hope in your family or whether you can hope in this or that. But I can guarantee you, I can stand up here with faith to say that you can hope in God. I do know that hope in him does not disappoint. He hasn't let me down. He's not going to let you down either. And everything that he promised will come true. And so we are looking, anticipating, expecting, and hoping in that day when Jesus does what he says he's gonna do. Our hope is in you, Lord. Our hope is in King Jesus. And that is the ultimate overcome, overcoming evil with good. The book of Revelation ends. By the way, Revelation's really, people are confused by it and I understand why. But there's a motif that's through the entire book. And the, the motif is, um, blessed is, are those who overcome. Those who overcome. And in the center of the book, and some would say it's even the literary center of the book, it says this, one of the elders said to me, me is this guy by the name of John, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He's overcome and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So we, we overcome not because we can ourselves do it in our own strength, but we overcome because Jesus went down to the real pit, the real dungeon, and he grabbed a hold of the keys of death in Hades. And he was powerful enough because, of the, because he was himself God and because he was sinless, he was able to ascend out of that pit and stand victorious on Easter Sunday. And now the Bible says that he has ascended. He has been exalted to the right hand of the Father where he now sits, victory assured. And he says that he's coming back for you. And he says that not, not only is he able to predict your future, like Joseph was able to predict the cupbearer's future, he was able to secure your future. He was the one who won it for you. So this is our hope. And the songs that we sing are like defiant acts, defiant songs against the pit, against the dungeon, against the brokenness of this world. We're standing in defiance of that, of disbelief and cynicism and skepticism. And instead we're standing on the hope 
and standing on the reality that what Jesus said, he's able to perform and he has said it, that means he's going to do it. And so we can trust him for that. So Sunday is, a t- we, we're, here, we're here to celebrate, y'all. We're here to celebrate and give him praise and honor and glory and to remind ourselves, the pe- people sitting around you, that yeah, life is hard now. Like, it's hard. Like, it's definitely hard. But nothing will be able to stop God's mission to overcome evil with good. Let's stand and let's pray. God, we just want to say thank you that we can trust your word. We wanna say thank you that we can trust your promise. We wanna say thank you that not all things are equally true. Some of us have internalized and held close some things that don't belong, all kinds of things. Maybe they're true or they're partially true, but we have held them way too close. And they're affecting how we see ourselves. They're affecting how we see reality. We just want to let go of those things because what we want to hold close and what we want to believe is most true is what you have said about us and we do believe it we do believe you just getting the the picture of someone here just uh, sitting at a table and pushing away all of this like junk. I'm almost picturing, I don't know if it's like junk food or something like that. I'm not sure. This is maybe one of those weird visions. It's like you're, you're pushing that away. It's like, it's, it's not actually healthy for you. It's not good for you. It might be appetizing or whatever, but it, but it has no nutrient value. And the Lord instead has prepared this like beautiful feast for you. And he's putting that in front of you. And not only does it taste really beautiful and good and amazing and look beautiful and amazing, but it's actually nutrient rich and it's actually good for you. And it's good for you to, 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 to eat and to drink. And so maybe that is for someone here, I'm not sure. But if I'm talking to you, I just encourage you to just say yes to the thing that God has put in front of you and to enjoy it. I just want you to nurture the beauty of your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Right now, I'm giving you the antidote to a life of fear and worry and doubt and cynicism. It's right here. Jesus said, I will be with you even until the end of the age. And so in Jesus' name, I just pray over you those words that I believe are true. And God, I pray that you would come close to each and every one of us as we hope in your name and as we trust in your name. We pray that you would come close to each and every one of us. That we would nurture this relationship that you've given us. And this would be the place that we live from, this place of hope, this place of firm foundation. Would we operate and live from this place what you have said is most true i just want to challenge you guys this is a little out of the ordinary for us and come back next week i won't be this weird okay but i just i just want us to say that we believe 
in Jesus's victory together. I believe in Jesus's victory. So here's, here's how I wanna do that. I just, um, on the count of three, I just want us to say that out loud together. Again, this is your act of faith this morning. It's to tell your mouth what's going on in your heart. And that is that you believe in Jesus' victory. So on the count of three, let's say, I believe in Jesus' victory. One, two, three. I believe in Jesus' victory. Amen. God, we praise the name of Jesus together. Amen.